whether it is the French or the Turks or anybody you want to name, certainly the Japanese and the South Koreans, are engaging in the most fascinating case of selective listening. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and we're joined from Washington by FP columnist Julia Yaffe. Julia is also a contributing writer for Political Magazine and Highline. And David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, who is also in our Washington studios. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. If you have episode ideas, comments, questions, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from Brooklyn, and from California, we had the following conversation. So I was spending the weekend, as one does in, over Thanksgiving, in the Middle East um, and had the pleasure of Turkey with hummus and uh, the chance to talk to a lot of people from the region. And here's the interesting thing that I found. Everybody was outraged at the Trump team's uh, overt Islamophobia. On the other hand, they felt that the Trump team had really expressed only two coherent, consistent views with regard to the Middle East. One, they didn't like ISIS very much. And two, they didn't like Iran very much. And that they felt that what the Trump team would do is anything that would help make them look strong against ISIS, anything they could do to help roll back the Iran deal, and that was completely consistent with the views of the sort of moderate Sunni array of states from Egypt to Jordan to Bahrain to Kuwait to Qatar to the Emirates to Saudi. And that they thought, well, yes, he's an Islamophobe, but he's an Islamophobe we can do business with. And they were kind of cheerful about it because they felt that while Barack Obama came out with a speech in Cairo in which he expressed his uh, admiration for Islam, he was a more pro-Islam guy that they couldn't do business with, who didn't want them to get too involved in, in any of the problems in the region, and whose big pivot in the region was towards Iran. So the first thing I'd like to do is we sort of take a look at what's shaping up here around the world in terms of uh, post-Trump foreign policy, is take a look at these assumptions. Julia, what do you think? What do you what do you think about the assumptions that these various folks from various countries I spoke to made? I think this is a lot of people going through. I mean, you're seeing this all over Europe and inside the U.S. Uh, people trying to deal with a completely unexpected reality that they're now faced with that they're going to have to deal with for at least the next four years. I think probably eight, and they're trying to figure out you know, how whether they can work with this. And so far, they don't have very much evidence to go on. Um, you know, d depends, you know, how the wind is blowing. When you ask uh, Donald Trump one thing or another, he might answer two completely contradictory ways. You know, the, the foreign policy speech that he delivered back in April, you know, I, 
if you do a kind of tally, I think it all kind of adds up to zero because it seemed like each thing canceled out. You know, there were, there would be a sentence and then a little further down there would be another sentence that, that canceled that out. So I think people are trying to kind of make the best of a completely surprising situation. Corey, when you look at this, is Donald Trump the cure for Obamaism that our traditional allies in the Middle East have been seeking? Uh, too soon to tell. Uh, but I do think folks in the region were exasperated with President Obama's combination of leading from behind while also criticizing allies' domestic and foreign policies. So I'm not surprised that people are hopeful that the unknown of a Trump administration might at a minimum choose one side or the other of of that continuum, that is, either back our Sunni allies and take a an strong anti-Iranian stance, or just stay out of the business overall. But but don't don't simultaneously criticize what allies are trying to do and do nothing yourself. So, David, one of the things that was a kind of an X factor in these discussions was that they also noted, of course, Trump's fondness and bromance with uh, Putin. And and they sort of thought that, you know, Trump would likely sort of give the Russians a bunch of room to do dirty work in Syria, but that this might also lead the Russians to continue to cozy up to Sisi in Egypt, to continue to cozy up to Erdogan to the extent that that's possible since Erdogan's on the both sides of every issue, possibly to continue cozying up to Cyprus in terms of extending bases. Uh, and then, interestingly, your friends, the Iranians, who you followed so closely, last week made, uh, made a statement, one of the leading figures there made a statement saying, well, we're thinking of opening naval bases in Syria and Yemen, and naval bases are much better to have than nuclear weapons. Um, and so one of the questions is the shifting balance of power in the region, and will Trump's fondness for Russia and desire to sort of lean back when it comes to uh, certain aspects of, of foreign policy open the door to kind of Sykes-Pico 2.0, where a bunch of other foreign powers have spheres of influence that we de facto cede to them? Well, first of all, David, you know that you're on the ER when people are talking about Sykes-Pico 2.0. <laughs> that would get you thrown out of, of, of conversations in most parts of America, but not in Brooklyn and not high above DuPont Circle and certainly not where Corey is. You know, no, no, for, Corey, for, for Corey, a hundred-year-old agreement is new news. That's it. That's it. And actually, I think the big news here would be if, in fact, Trump says that he's going to pull out of Sykes-Pico, the original one. So anyway. Um, it was a terrible deal, a terrible deal. I'm <laughs> right. going to tear it up and walk right away from it. I would have it. negotiated it much more toughly. Um, and declare victory. Okay. He would so, use gold rulers ooh, to draw the borders. Ooh, I like this. I like this idea. Julia's, nice. Julia's nice. Thinking, Julia. She's thinking big. She's thinking big. Huge. Okay. I'm thinking huge. <laughs> so um, first thing to remember is that every American ally – who is sitting here bloody confused, whether it is the French 
or the Turks or anybody you want to name, certainly the Japanese and the South Koreans, are engaging in the most fascinating case of selective listening that I have seen in many years. And the way they do that is to build right on what Julia said about the speech or from the transcripts of the interviews that Maggie Haberman and I did or his talk about cyber uh, a month ago. And they're picking out the parts they like and they're ignoring the parts that they think would bring crisis to the relationship. So when the Japanese come along, they don't pay any attention to the part where he says he'd pull all his troops out if they don't pay more for their defense, and instead they talk about how tough he's going to be against the Chinese. And when you go to the Middle East to have Turkey in the UAE, something we'll have to discuss as a sort of a set topic of a completely separate show, um, people are sitting there saying, isn't this great? He's going to be tough on the Iranians, and uh, he hates ISIS, Without sort of thinking the next part of that, which is supposing you had a guy who dismantled the Iran deal but didn't have an idea of what he was going to replace it with, who battled against ISIS but was not going to be around to deal with the empty, ungovernable space that's after that and see how they like it after that. So, you know, they're not doing the and then what question. And they're doing this because they're just looking for something that will be the starting of a conversation with him in which there's some form of common ground. Or just a shared set of uh, facts and uh, starting assumptions. I mean, this is not something, you know, throughout the campaign, you kept hearing about foreign officials, um, either ambassadors here in D.C. or in countries around the world, freaking out at the idea that Trump would become president because he's a completely unknown quantity, completely erratic, um, with no kind of ideological makeup of any that, you know, of any meaningful kind. And now you have to figure, you know, like David was saying, you have to find something where you can at least push off of that. You saw it with the Abe visit, you know, to New York. So Abe shows up. They have a very nice session. He gives them a golden golf club. There's a way to Donald <laughs> Trump's heart, right? Uh, but along the way, there isn't much discussion on the way out about whether or not Abe would cough up even more for the American forces that are that are in Japan because we know Japan already pays more than about $5 billion and that seems like a lot to the Japanese. Well, look, I mean, I, I you know, we, I, I want to get to some of what's going on in Asia in a moment. So I'm going to set that aside for a second. And I think also Abe's main point of it, his visit had, a, had, had more to do with TPP. But it, it is possible to say about the Middle East that you know, some of the things that work for Trump in the United States are working for him there. One is, you know, his policies are not very sophisticated, but one place where they're consistent is uh, that they're going to undo what Obama did. And in most of the Middle East uh, countries that I mentioned earlier, undoing what Obama did is hugely um, popular. But da David, um, I think I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that even you're kind of falling into this trap by calling them policies as opposed to uh, these kind of emotions firing and, you know, you're running against. Well, I'm not, the, I'm right? not, excuse me, I'm not characterizing them in any way. I'm characterizing what I heard from people okay. in the region. Okay. Um, uh, but, but what I, what I'm saying is, and this is not just emotions firing, the one thing that you can see consistently within the Trump alleged plan forward 
is to systematically, whether it's in education or in healthcare or in foreign policy or uh, immigration policy or climate policy, to to undo Obama policies, or this this extends to Wall Street as well, um, and in the Middle East. In Israel and in the Sunni states that have been traditionally our allies, that's a very popular point of view. Uh, they share some of the the mis, uh, this concerns about where things may go with Russia. Let me shift the focus then as we're sort of taking this little tour here of the horizon. There was a, an election, a primary election in France, and the candidate who emerged as the opponent to the, the Le Pen faction in France... Um, is a anti-immigration candidate uh, who, as the New York Times uh, reported in the uh, the edition that came out today, the day we're recording this, who has expressed kind of warm views towards Russia. Now, being anti-immigration and pro-Russia is 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 also kind of the view of of the Le Pen side, and so you you know that's the choice you've got in France: one one anti-immigration, pro-Russia candidate versus another. And you're going to have an election there on this. And you're going to have the UK having gone for Brexit and and France likely going in a direction that's going to warm Putin's heart one way or another. Uh, you've had what you've had in Eastern Europe. You've got movements like this in, in Italy and in Austria and so forth. Something very, very big is happening in Europe. In fact, when I look at what's going on in the first year of the Trump administration, I see Europe as being more central and U.S.-Russia relations as being more central to the foreign policy story than at any time since the fall of the Soviet Union. David, what do you think? I think you're probably right. It is more central. Uh, and as we'll get on to later on, something was also happening in Asia, obviously with the Chinese and with the North Koreans. And the, the question, I think, for a new administration coming in is, can you handle what you've promised as a rethink of the post-World War II order, the post-1945 order, at the same moment that you're handling fundamental changes in both the politics and potentially nuclear crises in both hemispheres. So I think they've got a bigger agenda coming in here than they know. And the Europeans are worried about it because they fear, as many in the United States do, that um, uh, that Mr. Trump, as we used to say during the Bush administration, misunderestimates Putin. Um, and uh, I think the Asians are fearful that he doesn't understand the scope yet of what the Chinese are planning for the region or what the North Koreans could get done in the next couple of years. And so if you well, put those two together, let's stick, let's, let's yeah, stick, stick to Europe. Europe. Yeah. So if you stick to Europe for a moment, what you have is a, a, a challenge in France, a potential challenge in Germany, although I suspect at the end of it, Merkel will come out fine, but I could be wrong uh, and have been many times before. Brexit happening, which is tearing at the internals of it, and an American president who has called into question both the fundamental goals of NATO and – or president-elect – and the question of whether or not in the midst of all this, we have to get everybody to agree on paying for their, for their own uh, defense in a greater way. That's an awful lot of change to be, ma to be managing at one moment. 
And I think the first thing that the Trump team is going to learn is they're going to have to set some priorities. And to do that, they're going to need to have a hierarchy of American interests here. And I think as you could tell from the earlier part of the conversation, in the in both his interviews and speeches so far, we haven't seen that hierarchy of American interests. So, Corey, to pick up on Julia's earlier point and, and use it to slightly um, – uh, qualify what David just said. If you don't really have a policy or your policy is really to do nothing and simply let somebody else fill the void, then that doesn't actually require a lot of work from your team. You can focus domestically or someplace else. And it really looks in many, many ways like the big bonus for Putin of engineering this massive hack of the U.S. election which is really one of the most stunning episodes of foreign interference in a democratic process that we can think of uh, since we used to do that sort of thing in the 60s, is that essentially, you know, it looks like Trump's going to say to Putin, you know, you know, in, imposing your will on Eastern Europe, uh, you doing what you can to undercut the EU uh, and weakening the Atlantic Alliance, um, and by the way, you know, Mike Flynn was one of the people who said, you know, Article 5 doesn't necessarily apply. You know, we don't necessarily have to step up for these people. Could, you know, could be one of the big consequences of Trumpism without a lot of work from Trump. You know, he could just let it happen. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I do basically agree with that. I think Putin is the big winner of the disaffection that's going on in the West. And I think it'll be a a fascinating counterfactual for historians to come whether the American election, presidential election of 2016 would have come out the same way without Russian interference or whether Russian interference was central to producing this outcome. I personally think this outcome would have been the same that it's about disaffection among Trump supporters. But there's a strong case to be made that we got the electoral outcome that we did because of disaffection by potential Clinton voters and not by not by, you know, a groundswell of support for Trump if Russian interference was adequate to depress Clinton voters then they did produce this electoral outcome. So, so point one is I do agree that Putin's the big winner of, of this uh, wildfire of populism burning through Western democracies. The second thing that I think you're right about is that, um, that Trump may not actually care very much about foreign policy. And and especially if he picks Romney as secretary of state, I would read that as an indication that, first of all, he's he is so sadistic. He's just savoring the humiliation of of forcing Romney to grovel when Romney received more votes for president than Trump received for president across different elections. Uh, but but that second of all. If he puts Romney in as Secretary of State, the the cognitive dissonance between 
Romney's view of the world and Trump's view of the world is so cavernous that what it will indicate to me is that Trump's not going to care very much about foreign policy and what Romney does won't matter that much. And that may actually be a very good outcome for the United States and the world if he leaves Romney the latitude to make marginally better choices than Giuliani or other more obstreperous potential candidates would do. The the third thing, which is Russia specific, is that I do think they're a very strong um, consistency in Trump's line of thinking. It is that you know, Russia deserves a sphere of influence, and it's too bad for countries that geography has penalized by putting nearby Russia. Moreover, I think he has the same view about China and about the United States, right? Like Porfirio Diaz's line about uh, Mexico's tragedy being so far from God and so close to the United States, that's basically Trump's view of foreign policy. Well, what that... I think will be most interesting, I promise I'll stop now, David, but what I think most will be most interesting is when Putin disappoints Trump, when it turns out that, that Putin's actually not satisfied with the laissez-faire view of Europe that Trump will give him but we'll actually see the potential for more gains and take them. David, can I jump in here? Because I think Corey's raised a really interesting point at the at the end here, which is... Okay, br- brief, briefly, because I would like to turn sure. to and, Julia on this. And, and the, the very brief point is, there is going to be a moment where Trump feels double-crossed by Putin. We just don't know what it's over. Whether he goes and grabs a piece of Ukraine which Trump told me he doesn't particularly care about. Well, he didn't uh, know. Remember that interview with Stephanopoulos where he didn't know that Russia was in Ukraine? Yeah, yeah. And when, when I interviewed him in March, I think I think it was a March interview, he said that he, he thought that everybody else cared about Ukraine more than we did. Why were we getting that upset about it? Or um, you could imagine Putin going in and grabbing a piece of Latvia or something like that and creating any kind of a crisis. I mean, you know, many people have written and in FP, you, you folks have written at some length about what the scenarios could be. And uh, I think these are sort of unpredictable uh, about how Trump would respond. So, Julia, let's take your point earlier that Trump has been incoherent on foreign policy and that the people around Trump haven't been that coherent and that he doesn't have a team yet, so it's hard to predict. Putin has been really coherent. Putin really knows what he wants. And one of the things that one can bet on in these kind of power geopolitics is that when one side doesn't really know what it wants and is kind of positively predisposed to the other and the other has a very clear agenda, the one with the clear agenda Um, is likely to make some big gains. You know Russia better than anybody. You've you've studied Putin very closely. How do you think the first year of a Trump administration plays out where Putin tries to consolidate this victory that he seems to have won? Well, I think uh, think that's going to be very hard to predict because both Putin and Trump are singularly unpredictable men. Uh, I do. I just wanted to double back to what Corey said, which is, I think, very apt that Trump doesn't really care. And I, it made me think of an article that appeared actually in the New York Times magazine that Robert Draper did about how Trump picked his vice presidential candidate. And when asked about, you know, what Trump thought um, 
his vice president would be responsible for, a source within the campaign said the vice president is going to be responsible for economic policy, for uh, domestic policy, for foreign policy, for dealing with Congress. You know, this long list. And Draper asked, well, what is Trump going to do? And he said, oh, well, he's going to focus on making America great again. So between, you know, if if he sends Romney to run Foggy Bottom and Jared Kushner to make peace in the Middle East, he's going to be focusing on making America great again and tweeting about CNN late at night. And I think you're absolutely right that the, you know, the power who has a clear agenda and who just wants it more, who's, um, I mean, I, I sound like a middle school soccer coach, whoever wants the ball more is going to get it. And um, <laughs> I love that simile, Julia. Well done. It may, it, so, wait, it but, may fit the moment pretty perfectly here. But, um, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this because December will bring the 25th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I, I started studying Russia during the long tail of the post-Soviet transition. And being the, uh, studying it and then being there as a reporter, I found it useful to think about what I was seeing and experiencing as kind of this long, messy tale of the post-Soviet transition as Russia tries to find itself, tries to find a core idea, a guiding principle, an ideology, a view of the world. And I think effectively on November 8th, 2016, a month before uh, the 25th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the the end of the Cold War ended, and it's going to continue. In um, you know the elections in France and the elections in Germany will just uh, reinforce that. And I think if essentially Putin did what Trump has been promising to do. He renegotiated the terms on which the Cold War ended. Kind of retrospectively, you know, he went and refinanced that, as it were. And he and essentially he reversed 25 years of the West imposing either by with rhetoric or with uh, support from organizations like NDI or uh, NED or IRI support for democratic movements in the, uh, you know, Warsaw Pact space, the former Warsaw Pact space. By taking his model, the kind of uh, realpolitik, old model geopolitics, and imposing it in the other direction on the West. And he's done so very successfully. Look at started with Eastern Europe, uh, England. Now he got, you know, he imposed his vision of politics where nothing matters. There's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as objectivity. There's only interests. There's only trolls. He's brought it not only to the doorstep of his greatest foe, but inside the house and has essentially redecorated the house in his, you know, in his vision. So I think he has effectively won the end of the end of the Cold War. Well, I I think your point, though, is that, you know, he has I thought, you know, Corey liked the soccer analogy. I liked your term about renegotiating the terms of the end of the Cold War. But it also proves that these things can change over time. Another thing that well, strikes he, yeah, me, though, he, like, I, he, sing, he put his mind to it and he was obsessed with it ever since he became president in 2000. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he has been singularly focused on this, on what he calls lifting up, lifting Russia up off its knees. I mean, the, the Russian joke is uh, Putin keeps trying to raise Russia off it, up off its knees and it keeps lying down. 
Well, that's what happens when you have an economy that's the size of Sweden's. And you know, the, the, I think part of the part of the problem here is figuring out how much of this is distraction by Putin from his own economic issues at home, which he knows uh, he has failed to reverse. And, well, I don't, I don't know. Think, that we, I don't it's think hard that, to figure that out. I, I think mean, it's, it's easy hard. to figure that out. I, I I do think that the Western view really emphasizes the economy too much. And in some ways, we're seeing Russia the way we see ourselves. That We assume that Russians have as little uh, pain tolerance for economic hardships as uh, Americans do or Western